Welcome to the Clinical Consult, a podcast from the National Register of Health Service Psychologists, examining timely psychological trends and excellence in clinical practice. I'm Dr. Samuel Lustgarten, and I'm thrilled to have Dave Drewstrup today with us. Dave is a doctoral candidate at the University of Iowa's Counseling Psychology Program and regularly publishes on the topic of racism and its clinical considerations. He has published research on white providers addressing racism in therapy, which is our focus today for this episode. Dave, thank you so much for being with us and welcome to the program. Thanks so much, Sam. Happy to be here. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean it when I'm, when I'm saying I'm thrilled to have you here. You know, we are in a context where your work is more important than ever before. And I recently had an opportunity to read your, your journal article that was published in Ethics and Behavior. I think it's titled White Therapists Addressing Racism in Psychotherapy. And I thought this is perfect for an episode because I, I, I feel like, you know, even me, when I'm in a clinical context, I have this truth and I feel uncomfortable even saying it at times, which is I know I have heard racist beliefs and ideas shared by those that I work with. And sometimes I haven't known what to do. And your article really inspired me to do some critical consideration of my practices, what that looks like and how I might proceed next time that happens. Because in my mind, it's not a if, but a when. And so I'm really, really excited to talk with you today about your article because it provides seemingly a model for us as health service psychologists and trainees. So I'm curious, what inspired this focus, this, this area of research and the article in particular? Yeah, thanks for saying all that, Sam. I really appreciate it. And, you know, as, as we notice what hits the headlines in the last several years, it's really different than what it was maybe five to 10 years ago. And, and race is at the forefront of, of everything we see these days. And so I think, I think the direction that the field is moving is to sort of see race as a more salient topic for therapy. And, and there's, there's glaring omissions in training programs um, and in textbooks about how to really do this in a concrete way. Like we sort of have this abstract idea as psychologists and psychologists in training that, you know, cultural competence is a good thing. And like race is important. Yeah. But like, what do we really do with that? What does it actually mean to wrestle with that in therapy? I think you've hit it right on the mark. And, and many of the things that you've been saying, certainly I was exposed to in training as well. Things like social justice or cultural competence, or you know, an, uh, another version of that is multicultural competence. And then what, what does that mean in practice? What does this mean more specifically? What does it look like when I, potentially as a white therapist, am addressing it too? You know, and, and at the outset of our episode today, I want to talk to you a little bit about the fact that we are two white people talking about the idea of addressing racism in the therapeutic context. Why are we doing this? Why is this important for us to be talking about this? Yeah, you know, there, there's a lot of ways to think about that question and, and critiques that ought to go along with it. You know, on one hand, 
what is the role of, of white clinicians and researchers to be publishing on this? You know, are we taking up space from clinicians and researchers and people of color who have been thinking about whiteness and, and, and telling us about it for centuries? You know, that's, that's a question that I wrestle with and, and open to critique. I, maybe some listeners today will, will have some understandings that they can share with us about what that role looks like, because certainly we're not the first to be thinking about this. And I think we have to honor and acknowledge that, that this comes in the lineage of, of folks of color who have been doing this and been trying to tell us how to better wrestle with this for, for centuries, really. But I also think of that's such a quote from James Baldwin. I can't remember if it's in The Fire Next Time or if it's in No Name in the Street, but he says something like uh, he's talking to white liberals who are thinking about uh, and talking about like the, the problems with race and racism and how harmful it is. And he says something along, along the lines of, don't tell me, I already know. Right. Go to your circles and your neighborhoods, because this is something that white people need to reckon with and start wrestling with in a much more serious and, and honest and self-critical way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's really powerful. Baldwin's words and that, that paraphrase there around, you know, the importance of us doing the work, too. You know, you mentioned a word there, whiteness. And I'm wondering what that means and, and identifying it, recognizing it. It seems like an important context for a conversation today. Yeah, absolutely. I think you're right. It, it helps us to ground ourselves in, in these words that we use a lot, like racism and whiteness and, and even race, largely, right? It, it helps us to sort of be on the same page about what we're talking about because they are complex uh, complex ideas and people understand them differently, but there are some grounding aspects that we can uh, that we can use to ground ourselves around in a conversation. And and when we're talking about whiteness, what we're really talking about is is like the lens through which we see the world. The whiteness lens is something that that is a part of the way everyone, at least in Western culture, sees the world. But it especially affects white people because. Mm-hmm. Whiteness is also a, a worldview in a way that we understand ourselves in relationship to other people. And this is mostly unconscious, right? We have to keep in mind that a lot of the stuff we're going to talk about today is from really well-meaning people, but, but the harm comes at a deeply unconscious level because we are, we are socialized and practiced in a way that makes it feel very normal, right? Whiteness is a way of walking through the world, assuming that things are natural or as they should be, that some of the racial inequities that exist, the hierarchies that exist, the way that we understand people who are different from us, that those are natural things, but in fact, they're not. Whiteness very much shapes the way we see the world, shapes the way we we have automatic associations about people who are different from us. And those come with, with very, uh, specific and like intentional historical contexts so that entities that have expressed power, political, social, and cultural power have have sort of infected themselves in dominant social narratives. And we've absorbed those over time. And so whiteness is really the way that all of that has happened to us. And we we are changed because of that. And we don't notice it. So whiteness is both an active way of, of seeing the world and also the idea that, that we're not seeing anything special, that this is just how it is. You know, it was described to me by a mentor, friend, colleague of mine, who said, you don't smell the air. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't, you can't smell the stink. 
And, and sometimes I think about that when it comes to, you know, thinking about and observing our whiteness and recognizing our identity. And, and I'm, I'm curious how, how you found yours and how you've come to this, this area, because I think sometimes the path is difficult to know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and I, I wouldn't go so far as to say that I'd, I've found it. I think it's a, it's an ever evolving and, and kind of forever process that white folks have to go through because, because of the way that it surrounds us. Whiteness is all around us. That, that way through which we see the world is everywhere and we can't escape that. And so it's kind of this, we're always pushing back against it, um, always finding ways to critique ourselves and our understanding of it. But hopefully if we get practiced at that, we do it better over time. And so I guess there were some important moments in my life where I was going through my master's program um, at the Family Institute at Northwestern. And at that time, it was my master's in counseling and we're thinking very psychodynamically and talking about countertransference. And so at the same time, I also had um, the really wonderful personal therapist who, who I was seeing for my own work. And, and with my therapist, I was doing a lot of work around my own grandiosity, my, my need to be special and, and these, these things. So you can, maybe it's sort of easy to see how some personal intrapsychic work on grandiosity overlaps a lot with whiteness and, and the underlying current of white supremacy that, that is a part of our social and cultural space that we're in. And so having a really caring and kind and empathic therapist while at the same time learning about like countertransference and the way that we exist in the therapeutic space, hopefully had an effect in allowing um, the defensiveness around talking about whiteness and self-critiquing ourselves around whiteness, allowed that to, to, to lessen a little bit. Um, and, and then moving forward, you know, it's, it's a lot of reading, it's a lot of experience, and, and that part is a forever task. I, I don't believe that I'm necessarily that far along or necessarily any better than anyone else. It's just, these are just lifelong tasks that we wanna be involved in and also have to make pretty intentional decisions about like, this is the type of clinician, this is the type of person I wanna be, this is the type of neighbor I wanna be. And, and then we have to invest in pretty meaningful ways. Yeah, thank you for sharing that, Dave. I wanna transition a little bit now to the context of psychotherapy and that care specifically. Now, when I put on my provider hat, I imagine, I imagine how people might react to this idea of addressing racism in that therapeutic context. In some ways, I, I would imagine you'd get some pushback. You know, is that the place to be intervening, to stopping, to changing someone's racist beliefs? Especially if a client's sitting down and saying, that's not my goal. I don't think that I need to change that. So help us understand a little bit about what racism can look in this context and what makes it important to address it in this context. Yeah, thanks for asking that. There's a lot of layers and complexity. So yes, we'll see yeah. if we can take it one by one. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, so first, like what it looks like and what it looks like in therapy, of course, like everything else really, really depends. And so we recently did an article with the Journal uh, for Health Service Psychologists. And so what we tried to do there was not address 
racism as we typically think about it, which is like the people who might use racial slurs or like really in your face kind of racism. That, that's kind of an older racism. We don't, that, that's not culturally um, congruent anymore. And Eduardo Benito Silva in his book, Racism Without Racists, talks about the evolution of racism and how it's changed over the decades. And that aversive racism is, is a, maybe a little better way to understand what modern forms of racism look like. And they're very subtle. They're by well-meaning people. Um, they're, they're more in social and cultural understandings, like messaging that happens. And so in, in this recent article, we, we tried to address that type of racism. So something that doesn't pop out and you go, oh my gosh, like that's bad. Right, but like right. the, the common stuff that, that people might come in with much more often. So in the article, we, we use an example of, of a client who is professing um, support for police. Um, which for a lot of people might not sound like like a racist thing, but brief, uh, even a brief amount of research in the history of policing and its current effects shows that it is racialized. There, there, it does have power and it does change the access uh, to opportunity and to livelihood for many people based on the concept of race. And so if we're using a scholarly understanding of what racism is, then absolutely the system of policing, the ideology that that client held by, by sort of well-meaningly expressing support for police does have implications um, in the systems of racism. So, you know, I, I'm thinking of, I'm here in Iowa City and over last summer we had some protests around racial injustice and some young black organizers were leading one of their marches. And one of the days they went up to the hospital and, and you know, the University of Iowa hospital mm -hmm. is held in very high regard. Like sure. people, people love it. Like it's got a great reputation. And as part of one of their protests, they put graffiti on the hospital and mm -hmm. a lot of, you know, Iowa city is supposed to be a very liberal place. And a lot of liberal people looked at that and said, Oh, that's too far. I can't, I can't support that. I want to support um, black liberation, but I, I can't quite support that. And so I'm thinking about that kind of a person who comes into the therapy room, who, who means very well, but, but misses some important things. Like someone who expresses that misses the idea that medical racism is, is very prevalent and very harmful. We have a lot of research that shows that doctors look at uh, black people in very different ways, prescribe medicine differently, understand their pain differently. And that's all a part of the system of medical racism. So that's just an example of how we can have a well-meaning person come into a session with us and, and just not quite understand. They're speaking from the lens of whiteness, from a lens of where the hospital is a safe and good place and not understanding the ways that these interlocking systems can cause a lot of harm. You know, Dave, I want to backtrack a little bit because this is vital what you're saying right here. And I want to backtrack to that idea of you know, talking to other health service psychologists or other trainees for that matter about the, the idea of addressing it in that therapeutic context. Cause I'm, I'm, I'm putting on that hat. Right. And I'm thinking, gosh, I wonder if there would be people, I wonder if psychologists would struggle to see what's their role then. Okay. So you've got that person that comes in and says, you know, I think the police are great and, you know, they ought to arrest somebody that graffitied the hospital. Mm -hmm. Then what? Yeah. Yeah. Good question. And I think the first part of that is, is something we talk about in the article. And that is for us as psychologists and providers to feel comfortable and knowledgeable enough to engage with that. 
we have to start with a lot of our own work. And so that's self-critique around some of the dominant narratives that we hold, which, which might be things like, like um, the belief that you know, a place like social services and hospitals are safe or the belief that police are positive. You know, we, we need to critique those and understand how they're racialized and understand where we've learned them and, and what groups we might have been um, not listening to as we formed those beliefs. And so that, that's a process, that's a lifelong process and not one that we need to get hung up on and become experts on before we decide to work with this in therapy. And so when stuff like that does come up, I think the, the most helpful thing we can do is just have a little light in the back of our head that goes, okay, this is, this is racialized. It can be racialized. And let's explore that. But we don't have to start by like changing the client, right? No matter what they come in to our sessions with, we don't expect to change or heal right away. Like the first thing we do is we're curious about it. Interesting. Tell me more. I wonder what feelings come up as you say that. And so this is very similar. I think this can be treated the same way. We, we start by being really curious about where that's come from, where they learned it, what associations or feelings they might have that go alongside it, and really just go deeper and learn more. Once we get to some of those deeper levels, then we can start being curious about how it might connect to their, to their lived experience, how racialized ideas or racialized interactions, maybe certain uh, relationships in their life, might connect to the things that they actually care about, the things they came in and said were their goals. But it's-, it's hey, as, as you talk, yeah. I, I, sorry to interrupt, as you talk though, you know, I'm, I'm, my interest is getting piqued around that word racialized because it's coming up and it, it's, it feels like an important word. And I'm wondering if you can talk to me a little bit about what that means. Yeah, yeah, thanks for, for getting that. Um, in this context, racialized means that race is a part of this. Um, you know, part of whiteness is that we get to walk through the world not thinking about race, that race is something that exists out there. Maybe we feel quite empathic towards the people that race affects, and we, we believe ourselves to be social justice oriented in that way. But it's another step to acknowledge and understand that race affects everything. That's what critical race theory has told us for decades, that race and racism is everywhere. And so we have to understand how that affects our understandings and our relationships. And so when something is racialized, like that's a topic that comes into therapy, it's important for us to say, like note, that is racialized. Like there are racial implications of that. And so we have a couple options. Do we address that? Um, or do we sort of just leave it there and, and, and pretend that it's not about race at all? And then we can sort of go along with our, our very comfortable practice that we're used to. That's really helpful. And as you start to talk, I'm, I'm hearing you allude to some of the things that I read about your model, you know, this model of addressing racism. And as you, as you talk into that, I, I want to just give this context that it, it seems like in your writing, there is an anti-racist idea embedded. And I'm, I'm thinking about authors that I've read like Ibram X. Kendi and Tim Wise who emphasize this idea that it's not enough to just not acknowledge it or accept the status quo or you know, just being silent in moments where a racist idea belief is being shared. And those authors seem to have this idea of like really trying to push back against systems of oppression and working to re-educate people about race. 
and I'm and whiteness in particular. And and Dave, I'm I'm curious if that fits for you, if that's like a, a guiding kind of post for some of your writing as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, Daryl Dwing Sue has a great mm. metaphor for this, and he talks about the the little walkway at the airport. If you stand on the walkway and just don't move, you're going to slowly move towards the direction of racism, because that's simply the way our society and culture is organized, that if we sort of allow things, this is as white people, if as white people, we sort of allow things to just go on and and we don't think much about it or do much about it, we're going to slowly move in that direction because that is how systems are set up. That's how political systems, financial systems and social systems are set up. And so Dave, what would be an example of that? You know, I, I'm following your analogy, but, or Daryl Wing Sue's and and I'm Mm -hmm. thinking like, what would that look like? What, what does that mean to, to, to put it into really concrete, like an example or of behavior? What does that mean to just be standing there and drifting towards racism? One example, at least in the therapy room for us as providers, the, the system of psychotherapy that most of us practice is not lined up to be anti-racist necessarily. We're certainly free to go through our entire lives and practices without addressing racism. We're not really trained on it in our in our degree programs, right? We don't we don't talk about oh what happens if someone's racist in session, like subtle racism, right? Maybe we would know how to speak up about something more brash, but I think this is an example of how we can simply stand still and and allow it to happen. Part of our ethics is to is to speak up when a client might be might be saying something unsavory like that, something racist, even with undertones. And so it is our task to to step in and not sort of silently uh, go along with that. Hmm. So, you know, moving back to that idea, Dave, of your model in particular, take us through what what the process looks like. What does change mean? Yeah. Um, you know, I've, I've, I've reactions to calling it a model and I know that's what I call it in the paper. So that's, uh, I'm just throwing this out there. I don't know if I love framing it that way because that makes it seem sort of robotic and like, this is a, this is sort of a staccato process of, of moving forward. And it's not that it's nonlinear, you know, we're going to flow back and forth. I also don't imagine that it happens over the course of like, we're going to do this week one and two, this week, three and four, you know, sort of, this could be something that we don't run into until month three with a client. And then like many other issues in therapy, maybe they're not quite ready for it at that time. And, and maybe it has to, we have to come back around to it in two months. You know, I mean, this is a very flexible sort of process. So that's my caveat about calling it a model. So, you know, what we're, what we're doing through the model is, is several different things. And, and the, the first one and this is happening throughout, is our own personal self-reflection. So the first sort of step in the model is, is for therapists to be doing our own work. That's self-critique. That's, that's really feeling the negative feelings that come with being a white anti-racist person. That means going through our history of, of guilt and empathy and, and having the, the emotional tolerance to sit in that and, and sort of understand that. So that way we're more familiar with what it means and how important this work is. And then we move on to working with the client. And the first thing is like anything else, we wanna maintain the relationship. We wanna protect and have that holding environment and, and make sure we're not just 
pushing our agenda on them. So we start right, by because Dave, that's that's the piece where I'm like, you know, I gotta imagine some people push back at this idea because our our theoretical orientations are often around therapeutic alliance, building that strong rapport. Does that threaten it though? Yeah, absolutely. And and I think we we are willing to take that risk with a lot of things, right? Mm-hmm. We push up against defensiveness all the time. And, and part of the challenge that I hope this research moves us towards is seeing racism as one of the valid things to work on in psychotherapy. It negatively affects white people's mental health, it negatively affects white people's understanding of themselves and the world. It leaves us less whole. And what else do we work on in therapy besides claiming these other parts of ourselves that then make us more whole? So we do, we do embrace that it, that it causes conflict, um, but we, we can also find ways to, to smooth that by, and that's by starting by working on that relationship, sort of being empathic and also simply introducing race as a salient topic in therapy. Spending time with that first is really important so that there's not that disinvestment and this uh, sort of guilt and, and, and shaming that happens. So once you start building that empathy, it sounds like you can start to get to a place of maybe challenging some of these beliefs. Yeah, yeah. I think once that empathy and then that trust and that safety is secured, and at that stage, we're also hopefully introducing race as a salient topic. Like, oh, interesting. I, I hear that, you know, I notice your voice change when you describe some of the protests that you saw last month. I wonder why that was important, right? And so we're empathizing and introducing this as this is something we can talk about in therapy. So then later down the line, when this becomes appropriate, we can start exploring sort of their racial consciousness. I wonder where you learned that stuff. I wonder uh, what that's meant to your life, starting to connect the dots that that things are racialized, right? These things shape and have importance to our life. There's meaning behind them. So sort of guide them and help them around some of that meaning making is, is the next rough step, I'd say. Got it. Got it. And then ultimately, how do you hope your work, anybody's work, especially because I think that part of you know, publishing and providing research is the hope that other providers do this too. What do you hope the impact will be? Yeah, you know, I, I hope the, the impact is is at least twofold. I think the focus on clients is one thing, but the focus on, on how we as providers are learning to self-reflect and self-critique is equally, if not more important. And so I hope that some of this can be used as a, as a guide and, and a validation for how difficult this is, but also how necessary it is. This is just plain hard, right? Going through this process of really being honest about the ways that we contribute to racism, like that's hard. We don't want to do that. And so hopefully this gives us a a path forward to do that and gives us some community. Like, you know, we can do this and we're also not alone in doing it. So the shame and and guilt that comes through our self-implication in racism and whiteness hopefully is lessened when, when we feel that others are doing this too alongside us. Maybe we can even form some, some working groups or, or even just friends to talk with as we go through these processes. Dave, I think that's a huge takeaway, even for me and my work too. You know, as I sat down with you to have this conversation today, I know that 
for both of us, our focus was very much on like, what about that client? What about that client? What are we going to do when the client mentions something? And I think it's a huge takeaway for me. And I really appreciate you emphasizing that towards the end of our time today is that it's really, really important to be doing the work. And I think it's a big takeaway for me is that the work never stops and I've got to keep investing. I've got to keep spending the time. Given our talk today, Dave, I'm curious what listeners and what I can do to continue my re-education, if you will, about race and, and my whiteness. What would be some good things to, to pull from and read? Yeah, that, that's an important sort of understanding that we can all be intentional about going forward. And there are two layers to it. There's reading and there's things we can do. So I talk about it a little in the, in the paper, but from, from one perspective, maybe there's a few books that uh, folks can can pick up if they haven't already. One of them, one of my favorites is Martin Luther King's last book. It's called, Where Do We Go From Here? And, and in that he gets into some really important issues, some of which we talk about in the paper. Another one is a race talk by Daryl Wing Sue. And, and he's in the psychology world, so that's very accessible for us. And folks have probably already read him in quite a few other places. And then lastly, there's a brand new book called We Do This Till We Free Us by Mariam Kaba. And, and she's looking at, uh, she provides this way into, the, into social movements, into organizing, into, into new ways of thinking about justice in the world. And so I bring up that book because that's the other side of your question is like, we, we all can't just sit back and read, but actually getting involved in our community, getting involved in social justice movements, just like Martin Luther King called us to do 50, 60 years ago. So I hope some of that's, that's useful for folks. Dave, I so appreciate your, your time, sharing your expertise and, and giving us a little bit of an idea of what this process might look like. And, and to note that, you know, as much as we call it a model, that, that it's flexible and nonlinear and we might go back and forth. I think that that normalizes this process so much as well, that it's not just this kind of rote memorized process that we can get done in five sessions or less. Um, so thank you so much for, for giving us some idea and maybe some inspiration to address racism when we see it or hear it in the psychotherapeutic context. Yeah, thanks so much, Sam. It's been a pleasure to talk to you and appreciate the conversation with you. Absolutely. And listeners, thank you for tuning in. I'm Dr. Samuel Lestgarten, and this has been The Clinical Consult, a podcast from the National Register of Health Service Psychologists. As a reminder, all episodes provide general information for discussion purposes only and don't serve as formal clinical advice or continuing education. If you're interested in hearing more about this model and addressing racism in the therapeutic context, be sure to check out Dave's webinar for the National Register entitled Addressing White Racism as Part of the Psychotherapy Process. And more information about this model can also be found in Dave's upcoming paper for the Journal of Health Service Psychology. Thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in and take care.